I ran across something this week in an online forum that I found interesting. Somebody posted the question, if you could spend one day with someone from, anyone from the last hundred years or so of history, who would it be? And, and the answers were, were interesting, right? And it kind of ran the gamut of, of people. Um, there were the usual suspects, right? Einstein was in there. Uh, JFK was in there, Marilyn Monroe, Florence Nightingale. There, you know, they, they had lots of different uh, people there. Uh, Winston Churchill, you know, that, th- those, those folks, that crowd, right? But there were also, I was glad to see J.R.R. Tolkien made the list, right? That was, yay. Um, there were also some outliers, like somebody put Hitler. What's wrong with you, man? Um, or or uh, uh, Fidel Castro, you know? Uh, there were people who, and there were people who put like obscure, like the French philosopher Albert Camus, right, and, and Aldous Huxley, and like what are, it's it's really fascinating. If you could spend one day with anybody from history in the last hundred years, who would you pick? So let's let's do that right now. Um, why don't you tell someone nearby who you would choose? Online people, you can type it in the chat. But uh, pick somebody. You can spend the whole day with them. Go. It probably would not surprise you to learn that uh, my, prop, my choice would be likely J.R.R. Tolkien, though I'm torn because I also would want to hang out with C.S. Lewis. So, so I, I would say to J.R., hey, how about we go to the Eagle and Child pub? Because that's where they all hung out, right? Like you could hang out with him and Lewis and Charles Williams and all those guys. I think that would be cool. Hey, thanks for, for doing that today. We're going to talk today about the company we keep here at the end of the world. Thanks for being here today. Um, I want you to, as Kyle mentioned earlier, uh, take a second, check out all the stuff that's going on in your bulletin. One thing I want to highlight, uh, Chapel Rock's own Matt Cutler is working on his doctorate. And so you can help uh, Matt become Dr. Matt. Uh, And there's some information in your bulletin about that. He needs some folks from the church to kind of help him with that project. So if you have the bandwidth uh, that you could do that, that would be a great blessing to him. And there's information on the back page of your bulletin about that. Uh, open your Bibles to Revelation 21.1. That's where we're going to start today. We're going to kind of bounce around in this final book of the Bible. For the last few weeks, we've been in a sermon series called Approaching the Apocalypse. And we've been talking about how it sure seems like the events described in this last book of our Bible are, are drawing uh, near, and how because the book is so complex, it would benefit us to talk about how to approach it. So we're talking about how to approach the apocalypse. Our word revelation is a translation of the Greek word apocalypsis, which means uncovering or unveiling. That's the root of our word apocalypse. Let me tell you how this series came about. I had actually scheduled something else in this five-week time slot. Uh, it, was, it was designed to tie in with something that was supposed to be happening in pop culture. Uh, I found out in March of this year that that got pushed off into spring of next year. And so we'll still do that series uh, next year in 2023. But I'm like, I've got this 
hole now, this five-week slot I had expected to fill with something else that now needs something. I don't know if you know this or not. Two weeks out of the year, I get away to do sermon study preparation. The first one is to plan the next year's preaching. I'm one of those guys that does a year-long plan. I, I know what I'm going to be preaching in November of next year, okay? The second week is to prepare. I set up study documents, files for every one of those things, start gathering information. I like to have something started on every single sermon I'm going to do for the next year. So that when I walk in the office on Monday morning, the work has already started, right? That's just my preference. Not everybody works that way. That's my, that's my rhythm. And today... I'm leaving uh, to, to do the second of those two weeks. So I would welcome your prayers this week if you've happened to think about it. Just, you know, God, please bless Casey with focus and, and industry this week as I work on next year's stuff. So I was thinking, oh, man, I've got this five-week slot that I need to fill somewhere in there. What am I going to do? And it wasn't audible. I didn't hear it, but I, I heard it in my heart. You know that the voice in your head that's not your own inner monologue? And, and the Lord spoke to me, and he said, I want you to preach from Revelation. And I was like, or, <laughs> just go with me, I could do something else, like anything. And God was like, or, just go with me, Casey, you could obey me. Yes, Lord. And I know in the last few weeks, I've probably raised more questions in your mind than I've answered. I don't know that that's a bad thing. Um, I've repeatedly told you through this series to be skeptical of anybody who says they've got this all figured out, including me. Like you need to dig into this on their own. You need to do your own homework. And so if, if this series has caused you to dig into it more on your own, that's a good thing. That's good. But if I've done anything, my, my main goal, I just didn't want you to be afraid of this book in your Bible. Don't be afraid of it. It's, it's supposed to be a blessing for you. Remember, that's the promise. If you read it, if you obey it, it's a blessing. And so I can't answer every question, but I'd like to spend our remaining Sunday in this series trying to answer some of the essential questions about what our experience in the resurrection and our final eternal state is going to be like. You see, the book of Revelation assures us that our forever home with God is a state of personal and corporate wholeness. We talk about this a lot here at Chapel Rock, this idea of shalom, right? That everything is right. Your relationship with God is right. Your relationship with yourself is right. With your family and your neighbors and your community and even God's creation, that all those relationships are right. That's wholeness. So it's personal and corporate wholeness seen most clearly in our perfected relationships with God, ourselves, and each other. That in this book, we learn that because sin is destroyed, so is pride and envy and lust and apathy and shame and hatred and everything else that sets itself up against the, the worship of God in our lives. Everything that destroys our relationships with God and with each other will be destroyed at the end. And so because of that, we should strive for that here. That in the end, God purifies the universe of all evil, and we are allowed to experience his glory of a recreated world where God dwells with his people in perfect union forever. Now, that's a really compressed summary of a lot of passages in this book, but I think one of the greatest is in Revelation 21, 1 and following. Look with me at that passage. 
John is writing. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now, you need to understand. Let's go back to that, Robert, if you could. Thank you. Sea here is an image for fallen sinful humanity. Pretty, pretty consistently through the New Testament, and especially in Revelation, see, sometimes it's literal, like the Sea of Galilee, but oftentimes this is an image. What, what he's saying here is, it's not like on the new heavens and new earth there aren't going to be any oceans. There will be, right? That's, we, we need that for our planet to function, and it'll function perfectly. What he's saying is that the fallen sinful humanity is gone. Sin is gone. It's dealt with. Verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. I want you to understand this. Not only will physical pain be gone, there will be no reason for emotional pain. Because sometimes you wake up in the morning and your body hurts. And sometimes you go to bed at the end of the day and your heart hurts. All of that is done. It's gone. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The greatest promise of the gospel, the good news that Jesus died in our place for our sins so that we could be in a right relationship with God forever, means that God chooses to keep company with us for eternity. The message in this book is that God wants you to keep company with him forever. How do we approach the apocalypse? By keeping the best company with God and with a perfected human race forever. That's today's big idea. Because in our final state, we will be perfected. We must move toward personal and communal wholeness here to prepare for a life of them forever. The reason you are given this, church, the reason you're allowed to see this glimpse into your own future is to make you want it now. It's to make you strive for it here. It's to make you pray about achieving it in this life. Now, will it ever be fully complete? No, of course not. Only in heaven will that be completed and, and, and finalized. But the reason it's given to you now is to make you hungry for it, to make you want it, to make you work toward it. So what is that perfection going to look like? I mean, that's the, that's the question we all want to know, right? And John had to push the Greek language nearly to its breaking point just to try to describe what he saw. So I'm under no illusions that I can answer what he doesn't. But what I can do, I think, is organize information in a way that I think will help. You know, when we were in school, we learned that if you want to know something, what do you do? You ask the, the five W and an H questions, right? Who, what, when, where, why, and how. You, those, that's, you should ask that, you know, if you want to know something. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about our eternal state. We're going to talk about the end of the, the road for us and the beginning of the next one <laughs> and just ask those questions. Who, what, when, where, why, how? So who? Who is going to be in heaven? Well, God. God is going to be there. Revelation 21.3 makes this clear. He says, John says that we will see the face of God and not die. In Exodus 
33.20, God tells Moses that no one can see his face and live. And then God hides Moses in a crack on the side of Mount Sinai and puts his hand over it and passes by. And Moses is allowed to see kind of the afterburn of God's glory. God tells Moses, you can't see my face and kill you. But in heaven, we will be given a privilege that Moses in this life was denied. Now, I think he'll be there too. He'll finally get to make good on this, this long-delayed promise from God. Look at Revelation 22.3. No longer will there be any curse. The curse there is a reference to sin. We'll come back to that. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. I want to I land on this for just a second. Now, we read this, and we go, What? What is that about? Is like, is there, is there some tatted up inked dude inside the door when you walk in and you just etch it? No, no, that's not what's going on. Remember I told you last week that the book of Revelation is absolutely saturated in the Old Testament. This is a reference to the high priest of Israel. The high priest of Israel wore a turban on his head and on that turban was a little nameplate that said, holy to the Lord and had the covenant name of Yahweh when it says that his name will be on their foreheads, that's saying that you will then enjoy in heaven the blessing of being marked by belonging to God, being holy, set apart for him, his own dearly loved property. <laughs> this is huge. God is going to be there. Of course, if God is there, that means Jesus is there, right? Right? The lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is imaged a lot of different ways in Revelation. In Revelation 1, he's a, a glorified humanoid persona, right? His hair shining and skin's like bronze. I mean, you know, white robe and glorious. And he, but he's humanoid. He's recognizable as a person, right? Then in chapter 5, he's called a lion but described as a lamb looking as if it had been slain. But in the rest of chapter 5 and following, the lamb does stuff that we would assume only a human being can do, like open a scroll. Lambs don't have opposable thumbs. So what, what's going on there, right? Or in sitting on a throne, the lamb sits on the throne, you ever seen a lamb sit on a chair? Like, that, that's kind of weird. Um, I, so he's, he's described as a, as a, he's called a lamb, but he's doing stuff human beings do. I don't understand that. In chapter 19, Jesus is a warrior, right? Comes on a white war horse, sword coming out of his mouth. Remember, that's an image for his words. Stuff that comes out of people's mouths in Revelation is an image for their words. He comes out in force to do justice on God's enemies. But in, in Revelation twenty-two sixteen, 16, which is probably the last like, description of Jesus in the book, we read this. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to you to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and offspring of David, the bright morning star. The final description of Jesus in Revelation has him kind of like, if you'll pardon me for saying this, back in a form that would be recognizable to us. The son of David. The form he was in in his incarnation. When you get to heaven and you see Jesus, you will recognize him. You, you, you will be able to relate to him. In this great and glorious day when God's kingdom comes again in its fullness, 
It will resonate with you. So who's going to be in heaven? God is going to be there. God the Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit will be there. You're going to be there if you've accepted Jesus as your Savior and Lord. If you haven't, boy, how do you better get that done pronto? But you're going to be there. And if you're there, that means that the nations will be there. Now, we'll circle, let me circle back to one of these earlier recapitulations of the end of the world. Remember, last week we said there, a couple weeks ago, that you could end the book of Revelation at the end of chapter 7, and it would still make sense. Look at this, Revelation chapter 7, starting in verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language. That's every New Testament word to describe people. That's everybody. That's all y'all, right? All skate, everybody in the pool. We're standing there before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. See, one of the greatest promises about the who of Revelation who is going to be there, <laughs> is that every people group on heaven and earth that has ever been impacted by the gospel is going to be there. And because sin is dead, you know what that means? There's no racism in heaven. So there better not be any here, church. If there's not any there, you shouldn't have any here. Because that's what God wants to do, is destroy it forever. That's who's going to be there. What's that going to be like? Who, what, is the second question. What that's going to be like? Well, put it simply, it's a perfect garden inside a perfect city that rests on a perfect planet and is peopled by a perfect population. That's how John describes it. Look at Revelation 21, 22. He says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. Now look at this. This goes back to what we were just talking about. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Let me pause right there for just a second. The best thing that's ever existed from every culture that has ever had gospel witness will be present in heaven. I want you to think about that for just a second. And this would apply even to cultures who, who even before the time of Jesus, I think, began to worship Israel's God and basically converted to Judaism prior to Christ, looking forward to their Messiah. The, the honor and glory of the nations, the best thing from every culture that's ever existed is going to be present in heaven. Can you imagine the music? Can you imagine the food? Oh, my word. Carnival Cruise Lines doesn't have nothing on heaven's buffet. It's going to be awesome. The best thing ever. <laughs> he says nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
And then later we read, we read just one verse of this earlier. Let me catch the context, Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. Whoa, stop. When's the last time we heard about the tree of life? Like clear at the other end of your Bible. Like Genesis 3. Remember, Adam and Eve sinned. They got kicked out of the garden. They eat from the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God says what to his angelic court? We can't let them eat from the tree of life. That, that's not good. So he kicks them out. Do you understand what God is doing here? He, he's reversing the curse. The curse we've been under since Genesis 3, God is going to undo it. He's going to unwind it. And you get to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or eat from the tree of life. Why? How do, how do you know that? Well, it says it bears 12 crops of fruit. Why would it bear fruit if not to eat? There's nothing useless in heaven. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. Do you understand? The curse of Genesis 3, it's undone. It's gone. It's gotten rid of. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So what can we take from that? Well, a lot. <laughs> but to try to make it portable, I have to quote from the Lord of the Rings. I'm sorry. Deal with it. Um, I think, I think that Professor Tolkien was trying to describe what it would feel like to transition from earth to heaven in his description of the elvish community of Rivendell. Listen to this from the Fellowship of the Ring. He describes it this way. Frodo was now safe in the last homely house east of the sea. Rivendell in fall. Sign me up. I want to go. That house was, as Bilbo had long ago reported, a perfect house. Whether you liked food or sleep or storytelling or singing or just sitting and thinking best or a pleasant mixture of them all, merely to be there was a cure for weariness, fear, and sadness. That's what it's going to be like. Listen, I want you to hear me really clearly. If you die before Christ comes again, your body and your soul will separate. You don't get your new body until Jesus comes again. There, there is kind of this element in pop psychology where people, or pop theology rather, where people will, will say, like, if someone has suffered after a long illness, they're running those streets of gold, right? My grandpa died of emphysema when I was eight years old. I do not remember my mom's dad without oxygen tubes in his nose. I had no recollection of him that way, you know? And, and, and people will say, like, he's, he's breathing heaven's air. No, he's not. Not yet. One day, yes. Not yet. Paul's really clear, to be, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When you die, we put your body in a box, or we burn it, and we put the ashes in an urn, or whatever. And your soul is with Jesus until he comes again. And, and please understand, it's not like you're, you, the, the whole precious moments angel thing needs to just go away. Like this cute little chubby cherub with wings that wouldn't lift a, a sparrow, right? And you're floating around in cloud. No, no. You're in heaven's throne room <laughs> participating in that worship that says holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. That's where your soul is. Your body's here. And one day when Jesus comes again, they'll be reunited and your body will be perfected and glorified. I, 
want you to think about what that's going to be like, church. Just imagine for a second what a, what a, a body that doesn't get sick and doesn't grow old and doesn't wear out is going to be like. I'm, I'm just trying to image it for you. Let's say you like gardening, right? You will have millennia to grow the perfect garden in your eyes. And your back will never get tired from bending over working in the dirt. And your fingers won't get sore from digging up stuff. And I mean, I don't know, like in heaven, do you just throw seeds at the ground and they, poof, they just grow? I don't know. Let's say you love to travel. The universe is recreated. Brand new planet, perfect to live on. We've got a whole new planet to explore. You can spend thousands of years exploring a brand new planet. Or, or what about this? Like, what if in the new, new heavens and the new earth, remember, it's an entire remade universe. We won't get sick. We won't age. We won't die. Maybe then our race will finally get to travel to stars. Like, I want to go see Alpha Centauri. Cool, get in a ship. How long is it going to take? Oh, about a thousand years. Awesome. Let me pack. Because you won't, you won't get sick. And you're like, but, but Casey, how will we feel close to God? Because there's no sin, your communion with God is unending. Now, you can hang out for a billion years in the throne room and worship God if you want to. That's totally cool. But you won't feel any less distant from him on the other side of the universe. Because there's no sin. That's what it's going to be like. Wow, 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 wow. Sign, I want to go. I want to go now. So, it's awesome, right? Yeah. So what's... When's it going to happen? <laughs> we talked about the who, we talked about the what, now let's talk about when. When is this going to happen? Well, <laughs> that depends a lot on what we talked about last week. And, and, and the, the different views on this have different timelines. If you're post-millennial, it's probably a long time off. So remember, we, I showed you this chart, right? These are people who believe that, that the millennium at some point is going to start. And, and I look at our world now, and I go, I don't think our world now fits the blessings of the millennium as they're described in Revelation. So if you're post-millennial, <laughs> this is a long way off. This is not going to happen anytime soon, all right? But that, that's, that's one of the viewpoints that's out there, all right? If you're amillennial, which is kind of the position I've landed on, though it's amillennial with an asterisk, I, I you know, <laughs> I don't, there are things about it that kind of annoy me. Um, you know, the great appeal of amillennialism with its heavy reliance on symbolic fulfillment is that the divine to-do list to bring about the end of days is pretty short, right? If the millennium is an image of the church age, at some point Satan gets loose, he terrorizes for a while, Jesus comes back, everybody's resurrected, the end. It's, it's done, it's over. So, you know, if that's the case, what we're looking for is the return of Jesus. That's soon, you know. If you are of the traditional premillennial viewpoint, all right? You're looking for the same thing as the post-millennial and amillennial folks. It's just what follows is different, right? You're looking for the second coming of Jesus, right? Hear the trumpet sound, sky splits open, uh, Jesus comes down, right? But in their view, that's when the thousand years starts, and the righteous are resurrected, but not the wicked. That doesn't happen until later, right? At some point near the end of this time, Satan is loosed. There's a lot of suffering and tribulation. There's a final battle, and Jesus' victory is then complete leading to the great white throne judgment and the beginning of eternity. So all three of those first few views, I mean, the post-millennial is a long, it's probably a long way off. All-millennial could be any day. Traditional pre-millennial could be any day, but what follows is different than 
where I think we're going. And then there's one I didn't talk about last week. I cut it just in the interest of time, but I do, I probably wasn't fair to people who hold this view. I do want to talk about it for a second. I told you I would need more screen to show you this. This is why. It, it, the premillennial dispensational view is, is really complicated. There's a lot going on, okay? If you just, if, just to put it simply, the left behind books, this is essentially their view. That's that perspective, is the left behind stuff, okay? Um, and, and you could, so, you know, what you're, what you're looking for is this secret rapture. You're like, that's weird. How do you look for a secret rapture? I don't know. That doesn't make sense to me either. I, I'm not sure. And, and again, you're entitled to hold e- any one of these views. It's, this is not an essential doctrine. We, we need to love each other and get along, but we don't all have to agree. Here, here's where I am laying on the timing issue. When you look at not only the book of Revelation, but also the whole of the New Testament, you continually get the idea that Jesus' second coming is going to be a very unwelcome shock to those who are opposed to him and a, a welcome surprise to those who are in Christ. Here's what I mean. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 4, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Does that mean Jesus is going to come back at night? Not necessarily, right? It just means it's not, you're not going to expect it. It's coming at a time you, don't, you won't see it coming, right? If someone's going to rob your house, they don't knock on the door and ask to come in. They just show up, usually when you're not there, right? Okay. So, it will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. Do you get, do you get the wordplay there? He says it's going to come like a thief in the night, but it should not surprise you like that. So, what's, what's he saying? The best way I can image this for you, I think, is that it's like a surprise retirement party for you that you've been tipped off to. Right? Like, if, if you're going to retire from your company, and they're going to throw a party for you, and they tell, hey, what's your, what's your favorite kind of cake? You know, like, like they're asking you, like, what, what, you know, what, what do you want uh, to, to us to do? They tell you, but you don't know when it's going to be. You don't know where they're going to do it. You don't even necessarily know who all is going to be there. But you just know the party's coming. Okay. I think it's like that. You're looking forward to it. <laughs> Not sure when it's going to happen. Personally, I think it could be soon. I think we're seeing, uh, I might be wrong about this, but I think we're seeing history and prophetic scripture starting to line up with more consistent overlap. Um, So that's the when. What about the where? Where is all this going to happen? Well, again, a lot of how you answer that depends on your millennial view. If you're post-millennial or pre-millennial, then Jerusalem has a key role to play. And it's not just Daniel and Ezekiel and Revelation. There's also the book of Acts. In Acts 1.11, right, Jesus' disciples are are watching him ascend to heaven, and then an angel speaks to them. And the angel says, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven, and presumably in the same place, just outside Jerusalem, on the Mount of Olives. In, In... Postmillennialism and premillennialism, the, the, Jerusalem plays a significant role in that. The, the idea is that Jesus will come back in the same way he left at the Mount of Olives. I'm going to be there in two weeks. We, we, I, we leave for a 10 day trip in Israel in a week from Thursday. So we're going to be on the Mount of Olives. And I, I saw this in 2016. I fully expect to see it again. That when Christians go to the Mount of Olives, 
They're looking around. Wow, these olive trees are like two or 3,000 years old. They're really big. That's cool. And here's the, the church of all nations, and that's really cool. And then at some point, every one of them does this. Because they're waiting. We look forward to that. Maybe, maybe I'm going to be one of the lucky ones to be standing here when Jesus comes again, like at this spot. If you're dispensational premillennialism, that, that, that brings a much stronger emphasis not only on Jerusalem, but really all of Israel. And so uh, Har Megiddo, Har is the Hebrew word for mountain. Har Megiddo, the mountain, the plain surrounding the mountain of Megiddo is a big deal. Har Megiddo, Armageddon. It's that spot is where they say the final battle will be fought. The amillennial perspective with its greatly simplified timeline due to a primarily symbolic interpretation basically says that the where is less important than the what because this will be a global event and it will take place miraculously, simultaneously, all over the world at once. And some of you who are more literal are like, how is that going to happen? And I'm like, do you believe that Jesus is risen from the dead? This is the part where you talk. Yes, okay. So you believe in miracles? Yes. This is a problem because why? If you believe that a man who is crucified, the most painful way to ever kill a human being that's ever been invented, and rose from the dead in victory three days later, is alive, reigning in heaven, I think he can figure out the resurrection. I think he can figure out how we can all see it at once. I love how succinctly Dr. Jack Cottrell puts it. He said, Christ returns visibly to the earth, destroys the church's enemies, raises all the dead in a single resurrection, changes all the living, takes them all away to a single judgment day, and then inaugurates the eternal state. Boom. <laughs> it's done. Here's what I'm telling you. Your view of the end times has a great deal on where all this starts, but it all ends in the same place. A perfect city with perfect people, on a perfect planet, in a perfect universe. Who, what, when, where, why? Why? Why is God going to do all that? Well, that's a one-word answer. Love. He's going to do all this because of love. It's, it's about God getting back what rightfully belongs to him, that which he loves, you. Ultimately, God loves you so much, he doesn't want you to spend eternity without him. So much so that he sent his only son to die on the cross in your place for your sin and be resurrected so that you could be suited for an eternity with him. It, it grieves the heart of God that any would, would choose to exercise their own free will and refuse his gracious offer of salvation to spend an eternity away from him. And so if his goal is to move us toward personal and corporate wholeness, and we don't want that, you're not going to be really well suited for heaven See, Revelation is also really clear that hell is real. It exists. People will go there forever. Who? <laughs> Those who by their sin make themselves an object of God's wrath. God does all this out of love. And he is not willing, Scripture says, that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God doesn't, God doesn't want to send anybody to hell. He will just let them have what they want. If you want an eternity without God, you can have it. 
but he loves you too much. He wants you to spend forever with him. And this is why, church, we have such a strong mandate to, to share the gospel message of Jesus Christ with a, a world that's lost and dying. Hell is real. People will go, not because God sends them, but because they send themselves. He loves them, but he doesn't want that to happen, and he has entrusted that mission to you, church, to me, to share that good news. So what, God, what drives God to do this? Why is he going to do all this? Love. Who, what, when, where, why, how? That's the question, right? How is all this going to play out? My study of Scripture has convinced me that it's already started. You see, when you were baptized, you experienced the first resurrection. Right? When we baptize someone, we talk about that, right? You're buried with Christ and resurrected in him. The revelation only ever talks about two, which means that for us, this has already started. If you're in Christ, if you have named him as Savior and Lord and been baptized, this process has already begun in your life. God is already resurrecting you, and one day he's going to bring that to completion. That means there's only one left. And here, Paul put it better than I ever could. In 1 Corinthians 15, 51, Paul writes, listen, I tell you a mystery. It's the Greek word musterion. It means a secret that's now been revealed. What's that sound like? Revelation. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And then here he teases death. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory. What is that? We sang about that earlier. It's Nikao, the overcomer, the one who is resilient, the one who stays firm to the end. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. That's why revelation was given to you, church, to help you stand firm in, the, in this time when it gets a little rough at the end. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always get your, give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. On the final page of the last chapter of the final book in the Chronicles of Narnia, and at this point I should probably add, spoiler alert, um, it came out in 1958. You've had plenty of time to read it. That's on you. Some of the children who have been to Narnia lament that they must once again return to their homeland in England. But Aslan, who is Jesus as he would appear in Narnia, has good news for them all. He says, you do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. Lucy said, we're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan, and you have sent us back into our own world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leapt and a wild hope rose within them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother 
And all of you are, as you used to call it, in the Shadowlands, dead. The school term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream has ended. This is mourning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. And things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All of their life in this world and all of their adventures in Narnia had been only the cover and the title page, and now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. The end. Listen, there's a lot I don't know about the end, but of this I am certain. Because our final state will be perfected, we must move toward personal and communal wholeness here to prepare for a life of them forever. Listen, you've gotten just a taste. I hoped today to give you just a taste of what that will be like. It's your job to go out and, and throw a tasting party for everybody you know. It's our job to go out there and share this, this experience of what a glorified body in a perfected universe and perfect communion with God forever is going to be like. It's your job. God is calling you to this. He says, this is what it's going to be one day for you. Go share that with somebody else. That's what the book of Revelation is designed to help you do. It's designed to help you stand firm to the end so that you have the energy and the power and the spiritual fortitude to go share this with everyone you know. So my question is, is that the direction you're moving? History is on the march. And Jesus' return may be very, very soon. Are you moving that way too? Maybe you're here today and you need a fresh start. It's been a while since you thought about your own eternity. And you maybe did a little self-analysis and thought, I don't like what I see. And so even as we sing here in just a second, maybe you're going to need to take a moment and just kind of say, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm in. <laughs> I'm all in. For, forgive me for not living that way. Maybe you're here today and you've never experienced that first resurrection. In just a second, we're going to stand and sing a song together. And as we sing, I would invite you to come forward and, and, and place your faith in Jesus and be baptized. Be, let, let Jesus kill off the old you and resurrect a new one that one day he's going to perfect and glorify Maybe you're here today and you need prayer for something going on in your life. We'd love to pray with you and for you. I'm going to ask you to stand with me and, and, and we're going to sing and you respond as God leads you today.